It's 5.30 a.m. in Israel. We're riding in a minivan. Israel is a small country, and from our home base at Tantur, everything is perhaps an hour or 90 minutes away. In this case, about 50 minutes. I have Google Maps up on my phone because our driver really has no idea where we're going. And that's not his fault, necessarily. We're not going to someplace around Jerusalem, or to Tel Aviv, or to Bethlehem. We're heading to meet up with a group of Notre Dame Theology Master's students at an archaeology site. They'll have a couple hours work in by the time we arrive. The sun is coming up, and we're getting a look at the country that we haven't quite seen yet. Deep crags and valleys as we wind through the Judean hill country. The sagebrush on the hills provides dots of deep green against an otherwise deep rust-colored brown. At the valley base, lush vineyards and orchards and fields. If you're looking for a way to understand the topography and climate here, one way is to think of California. Israel looks and feels a lot like the Golden State. But if you're looking for a way to understand the land on a deeper level, and how it's formed our understanding of tradition for better or for worse, well, one way to do that is to dig. That's where we're heading. But for now, we drive. I'm Andy Fuller, and you're listening to Notre Dame Stories Tantour, Hill in the Holy Land. We're reaching our destination. We drive up a 400-foot hill, then carry our gear on foot another 100 feet or so to the summit. And that is when we meet up with Avi Winitzer, the Jordan Capson Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Notre Dame. We are at Tel Zeka, uh, considerably uh, important large site uh, between the Judean hills and the Philistine lowlands, uh, behind me actually, um, an excavation that is being uh, uh, led by Tel Aviv University and Heidelberg University in Germany for about six or seven seasons now, and we at Notre Dame is a part of that now, having sent nine of our students to participate in uh, every aspect of the excavation. Uh, to learn uh, what this place yields, uh, specifically, I think perhaps most in interestingly, uh, the relation of uh, the Judean kingdom, which is to our east, and the Philistine uh, uh, lands uh, just behind me, to our uh, to the west, southwest. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the borderline, this area is of significance, uh, great significance in terms of understanding aspects about the Judean king. Uh, kingdom uh, in the you know, Old Testament first temple period. Mm -hmm. It's quite possible you don't remember hearing of Azekah, but I'll bet you've heard the story of what took place here. Well, biblically, we have a few attestations in the, uh, in the Old Testament. The best known one is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David meets Goliath, famous story that I think everybody knows. Um, 
a lot of it is story, if you will, but uh, the facts are facts. The place is mentioned. Uh, uh, the battle takes place between this mound that we're on and the next mound uh, just to my right. Uh, and the, as I said, the, the story is a story, but the background is not. The background is history. Uh, because the story is about, you know, the ancient Judean king that becomes the father of this incredible dynasty and uh, a hero uh, of the Philistines. Um, and this is the borderline, and this is exactly what we have. Uh, the Philistine lands behind me and the Judeans in front of me. Uh, we are at the border so that uh, the names uh, in the Bible were not, you know, chosen out of a hat. They, they, reflect some reality um, and so that's a, a major part of that uh, beyond the Bible you have attestations of this uh, in extra biblical sources uh, most importantly the most important one is from the neo-assyrian period the Assyrians are the ones who came in the 8th century and almost uh, destroyed Judah they did destroy the northern uh, kingdom of, of, uh, of Israel uh, and in one particular case, Sennacherib, who almost destroyed Judah in 701 B.C., uh, sends a letter, or writes in the letter, um, about his campaign to this part of the country and names this site as we have it today, Azekah. In his letter, Sennacherib describes Azekah as a city with towers pointing to the sky like swords which means whatever was here before, it was significant in scale. Archaeologists working here since 2012 have made incredible discoveries. Several years ago, human skeletons were discovered. They were found in a cowering position, suggesting they met an untimely end. There appeared to be blunt force trauma and a fire. It's possible these were victims of one of the many invasions in the Zekka's long history. The site dates back at least to the Canaanite period, 2400 BC. That's before the Israelites were here, before anyone was here that we know of. The leader of the dig site since 2012 is Oded Lipschitz, the director of Tel Aviv University's Institute of Archaeology. He's a wonderfully genial man whose passion for his homeland and his work is abundantly clear. I asked him for a sort of lay of the land and high-level view of the site and its context. You can connect here a very old tradition uh, coming from the third millennium and going all the way to the biblical period. And this is one of the sources. Give another example, from the late bronze period, we found here figurines of uh, women that um, they are giving birth. In the same time, they have two babies suckling from their birth and very, very nice and detailed uh, figurine. And we have this figurine, we found some of them here, and we have identical figurines only in sites near Azeka, around us. Now, this is a goddess, and a fertility goddess. And it's not by accident that the main valley just below Azeka called Ela Valley, which is the valley of the goddess. And we have two sites around, which is one of his monastery and one is an ancient cave called the Twins Cave, or the Twin Monastery, and we can see the twins. 
And we see the we can see the tradition that were here continue to exist in this region for hundreds and hundreds of years. And only excavations where you discover it, you can find the real origin of this tradition. You can see how these traditions are continue and going from Canaanites to Judahites to later periods. And you, you can really see the, the origin and then you can see how these are these things are developing. This is the same from the uh, Hebrew script that was started here and then developed other places. The classical Jewish burial started here and then moved to, to Judah. Um, many, many, many of the Judahite traditions are from here. The pottery, the classical Judahite pottery started here and then moved to Judah. Mm. So you can see and then you can think who are Judahites and who are Philistines and what the connection between them, how things developed and all this. It's really the, the, the place to put a hand on it. I'm not sure if you caught that, but what Oded just said, that phrase continued to exist, is pretty important. The basic premise is this. The story arc found in the Bible is perhaps incomplete. Sites like Azeka are adding context and contour to the broad strokes of Scripture because they show a far greater degree of interaction between cultures. Avi explains this a little better than I can. The easiest example is um, that the Bible, the Old Testament again, gives you a picture from, you know, of Israel as monotheists who get it wrong. And so the prophets rant and rave and, you know, but the message was clear at Sinai, right? You know, this is your God and you're, when you take the land, you'll have it. And if you're good, everything will work out. You're not. Um, and there's a picture of, you know, monotheism that, you know, there are pockets of Canaanites. And, but there's monotheism. And then there's also the, the, the narrative of Israel that comes from, as a group, from Sinai, from Sinai out of Egypt, around Jordan and crosses into the river and comes in. And that's sort of an, ex it's called the, ex uh, the external idea. Israel was an external nation, comes in and takes the land. And then you have pockets. The archaeology basically is 180 percent uh, degrees opposite. What that means is that you see continuity from the local cultures that pre-existed uh, that story, if you will. In other words, if you go to 12, 1300, the Canaanites who were supposed to be there, like the statue that was found here. Mm -hmm. um, well, they mix with the, they became the Israelites. So the Israelites were an internal development from these people. The work at Azekah can be intense. It should get interesting if we go about this far down. The days begin early to minimize the exposure to the Israeli sun. The tasks include a fair amount of digging, brushing, picking, sifting, and clearing. The workers are students and scholars from all over the world, many of them learning archaeology on the fly from supervisors on site. They'll occasionally form bucket brigades to clear large amounts of dirt from one of the deeper levels of the dig zones. That, by the way, is really cool to watch. Despite the fairly intense labor, everyone genuinely looks to be having fun. Maybe it's fitting that one of the things Azeka is teaching us is that there is a far greater degree of intermingling among cultures than we might have guessed long ago. Because here, today, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Russians, Israelis, Americans, Germans, they're all represented. And there's a connection forming, sometimes across old battle lines. She could trace her lineage back yes, here. Yes, she's coming because she believes that she's a daughter for the Assyrians. Uh, Okay. And Assyrians were here destroying the Judahite place. So I say, your, fo your forefather destroyed my forefather place. 
So, but we are going to find it together, to exhibit together in the same place. In Azeka, archaeology is very important, and history, and by every, but the most important thing are the people, and I'm, I, I mean it. You know, this is the excavation that students are getting and staff are getting. Uh, uh, the best conditions, not, uh, I'm not talking about the beds and everything, but it's really, it's a kind of, a, 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 the, I, the main idea here is that the people are first. I'm not talking about safety, I'm talking about learning, being together, you see breakfast, you see what a good atmosphere they have. This is the be best breakfast in every archaeology uh, exhibition in the world, and, and, and I know what I'm saying, you see, <laughs> 9 o'clock. I should point out here that I've not been to a lot of archaeology sites, but I am inclined to take Oded at his word about this breakfast. The workers gather together for announcements about what's on tap for the rest of the day. If someone is interested, especially in bones, please talk to your area supervisor and say, I want to watch bones. The promise of bone washing is always a crowd pleaser. And then they feast on some regional favorites. We weren't going to join them, but then Oded insisted. And well, when in Azeka, do as. We had shakshuka, an impossibly delicious dish made of eggs poached in a tomato sauce with garlic and herbs. There were no leftovers. After the meal, it was back to the site. Now, you know how sometimes you tell a story not to relay information, or not even to entertain, but almost to confirm to yourself that something really happened? Well, that's the reason we're including this next part. So we were about to interview one of the students when a man came bursting onto the scene in a makeshift biblical character costume. Now we're talking fake beard, tunic, headdress, the whole thing. He started talking to a family visiting the site, play-acting as if he was King David. And that's when we saw where this was going. Because a short time later, here came the oldest son of that family, dressed as, you guessed it, Goliath. And he yelled out from the bottom, he said, I challenge you to a one-on-one. -on -one. Challenge you to a one-on-one. -on -one. If I beat you, you are all slaves to me. I beat you, you're all slaves to me. But if you beat me, I will be a slave to you. If you beat me, I'll be a slave to you. Will you allow me just to take like five rocks yeah. and I'll just, and I'll just uh, slingshot my, my, my big ugly friend over there? What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? It's a good idea? The stones were tennis balls, but the sling was real. Turns out the family put him up to this to show how David's sling would have worked. By the way, that weapon, the sling, pretty dangerous stuff. Armies during that time would have slingers, just like archers or other specialized units. Anyway, back to the show. David, air quotes, is winding up. With the name of Hashem, the Lord! Right in the temple, and he went down! And he went down! Is he dead yet? No. I then took his sword, which broke last time I was here. Very sad story. I took his sword, and I cut off his head, and B'nai Israel were victorious! Yeah, anyway, guess you had to be there. When we finally were able to interview our student, Casey Clam, she told us about how being in-country is shaping her educational experience. 
We've had really great leaders who've been very patient with us, teaching us the basics. Um, you know, anyone can fill a bucket with dirt, so not everything requires a ton of technical skill. Um, but we've also been able to get down in there and deal with things that could be the subjects of books later and give us tons of information. So even as beginners, we've gotten to do some really cool things. You know, I think being in the land of Israel, anyone who can see the beautiful views and the sights can get a sense of why this place inspired the literature that's been so important to our traditions. But when you're in the dirt and when you see certain things, you can, um, you can imagine the real people who the events that we read about occurred to. They are learning um, about uh, the land and about the, uh, the reality, the historical reality, the geographical reality, the, the, the economic realities, uh, um, the political realities, that the stories, uh, you know, you can read them, but you're not, you're, they're just not possible to sort of understand in three dimensions, as it were the way that one can do uh, here. This is really a unique opportunity for students who understandably uh, approach things from a theological point of view, um, which is actually even my preferred point of view, uh, uh, but challenge themselves to um, synthesize historical and frankly very scientific approaches to knowledge, to the land, uh, with what they uh, uh, get from the theological textual side that we do back home more. Uh, well, if I can give one example, just to the north of uh, Tantur, about two kilometers, is an ancient, uh, is the place called Ramat Rachel, which was excavated by the team that's leading this excavation right now up until 2012. In the midst of the archaeological excavation, they found pollen residue that they took to the labs and found two new species that were not believed to have gotten to this land, uh, including the walnut, until late Roman and after and, uh, times or thereafter. Uh, I make this as a point because there's an attestation in the Song of Songs uh, that mentions the word walnut, except for that it has always been translated differently because they thought when it was written, there were no walnuts here, and so it was understood in a different way. These guys come with pollen analysis and tell us we have walnuts in the 6th century BC and the biblical text now changes. Azeka was not the only site of interest for Winitzer and the students. They also focused on the land at the University of Notre Dame at Tantour. As you heard in the first episode of this series, the land Notre Dame leases from the Vatican is located between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's a long Hebron road, which is built on top of the ancient road that connected the two cities. And if your mind is already going there, let me finish your thought. Yes, that means, per the biblical account, Mary and Joseph would have walked by this spot on their way into Bethlehem. If you stand on top of the roof at the University of Notre Dame at Tentour, you get a sense for just how important this place was and is. If you look to the south, you look down into Bethlehem. In the distance is the Herodium, 
King Herod's fortress and tomb. It dominates the skyline despite being about 10 kilometers away. If you draw a straight line between where you are at Tantur and the Herodium, it would bisect the shepherd's fields, where tradition says the angels appeared to the shepherds to announce Christ's birth. Closer still is Rachel's tomb. The Bible says she died giving birth to Benjamin, who went on to father a tribe of Israel. At least one scholar believes that happened at Tantur, and mourners carried her body down the hill to its final resting place. To the north is the ruins of the Church of the Seat of Mary. This is a spot venerated as the place a very pregnant Mary rested on her way into Bethlehem. The old city is a 15-minute bus ride away. So all that to say, it's very reasonable to assume this spot played a major role in at least the early Christian era, and likely before. Yet there had never been an official archaeological survey of the area until 2019, when Winitzer and his students arrived. They worked with the Israel Antiquities Authority and ODED from Tel Aviv University to get a look at what lies beneath Tantur. We caught up with Professor Winitzer after his return to find out what kinds of finds the students uncovered. Why don't we start with uh, Azeka, if sure. that's okay? It was terrific. Uh, everything went as well as could be expected. Um, I think the students learned just an enormous amount from the basic techniques of archaeology to the theories and um, uh, about what um, what one expects to be finding, what what, what is being found, uh, what one hopes to find, um, and then also to situate um, this into a larger historical perspective. A couple of finds came actually from my site, so that I'm a little <laughs> bit. Um, one was a, an, um, a, a a figurine of a bull that. Uh, came out of the ground, and this is clearly a reference to um, the god Baal. And these are the kinds of things that you shouldn't expect in the biblical period uh, if the biblical period is all clean as the, you know, in theory it's supposed to be. Of course, the prophets rant and rave against just these types of things, and here they come out of the ground, and you see that if this is a nice Judean town, then certainly it's not fully monotheistic in any way, shape, or form yet. But much of Azekah's history is known at least the broad strokes of it. What is less known is what was at the University of Notre Dame at Tantour. And on that, even with an initial survey, Winitzer said the big pieces are starting to take shape. Tantour uh, literally abuts the road um, that uh, runs between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. The road is called, at that place, uh, either the the way of Bethlehem or the way of Hebron. It's the same road that continues from Bethlehem to Hebron. Um, and uh, it is the ancient thoroughway that, um, thoroughfare rather, that would have connected, that did connect the two cities. From the pre-biblical period to um, after the biblical into the Christian period, in, that, in, the, in the Christian period, this was a, 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 a road that um, was traversed by pilgrims walking from Jerusalem to Bethlehem or the other way around. Uh, we have evidence of uh, settlement and of churches and of uh, administrative um, buildings that suggest that this was, um, you know, uh, a busy highway for the mm -hmm. early Christian community. The area was 
very, very central, would have been central, was central in the, in the state of Judah, in the, in the nation of Judah, in the, of the Davidic kings. Uh, that's, it, we're talking about a few kilometers south of Jerusalem. Uh, and in fact, in the archaeological survey that was done there uh, this past summer with our students, we found evidence from uh, the Iron Age, including uh, remains of uh, uh, pottery remains of, of specific jars that are well attested from many, many other sites that date to the 8th century, to the period of Hezekiah. Um, so this would have been, you know, well within the the limits of the Judean kingdom uh, in the you know, pre-exilic period, in the period of the first temple. As you move forward, uh, this would have been, again, part of the Judean state in the post-exilic period. And, and uh, when you get to the you know, Hellenistic and Roman periods, again, this is a, an area between Bethlehem and um, Jerusalem that uh, bear significance. It is m my strong hope and uh, others in the department that interest will generate and um, promote excavation. Again, it would be something that would be collaborative with Tel Aviv, but with students coming and, and uh, studying and unearthing what there is there and hopefully working towards an understanding of, among other things, the what, we, what I'm sort of thinking of as the, the sacred geography of the land. It, it seems that already in the biblical period there are attempts to sort of understand this land as something more meaningful or something, you know, bearing the, 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 the um, origin of miracles. So that um, the development of later churches and, and, and traditions to try to make sense of this is something that I think would be very um, interesting to work out. The, the ecumenism side, the idea of having a place of ecumenical dialogue, uh, I think is still um, one of the major um, points of emphasis of Tantur. I would like to think that, I mean, if ecumenism was the goal, then one could do it in many other places, uh, many other meaningful places. In this case, I have, uh, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, a major point uh, for Tantur is also the fact that it is in the Holy Land. I think that the opportunity to actually go into that specific point of Tantur, to look into the land, to ask what made it holy, what made land holy uh, in antiquity, uh, is something that would um, really benefit Tantur and Notre Dame, and I think that people are starting to realize that. One more thing of interest, there was a mosaic found on the premises at Tantur, the kind installed on the floors of churches in the early Christian period. The thinking is this may have been the remnants of a Byzantine church, like the one a kilometer away, the seat of Mary. So we know what Tantur was. Remember in episode one, we charted its history back to the Crusades when it came under the possession of the Knights of Malta. Winitzer's project is giving us clues from much earlier, and it's starting to look like Tantur played a very important role from very early on. But what about its role today? Next time on Tantur, 
hill in the Holy Land. So we just left uh, Tantor. Jerusalem feels so mythical to me. We join Notre Dame students as they experience the Holy Land. So we just left the Western Wall. And after visiting some of the holiest sites in the world, it's clear this is about much more than just a pilgrimage. We've been walking along this barrier. Uh, they call the security border. Super intense. Um, we were not really prepared for it. All I knew is that it was a, a Muslim city. And it's hard to interpret. It's very hard to interpret. That's next time on Tantua, Hill in the Holy Land. Tantour Hill in the Holy Land is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. It's hosted by me, Andy Fuller. Our music is by David Tran.